Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello, and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Rivka Rivera. And I am Frank Capello. Rivka, here we are. We're doing it. Episode one of our podcast. How are you feeling? I'm kind of nervous. Sure. To be honest, because as I have told you, podcast, this is my first time podcasting, and it's like recording your conversations, which is strange and exciting. But I listen to so many podcasts. I'm excited about this format. I mean, you're naturally good at it. You're a naturally gifted speaker. So <laughs> I think I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Get ready, um, everyone, for my gifts of speech. Well, that's a that's a that's a perfect segue uh, for us to introduce ourselves to the audience, because um, this is everyone's first episode. And, you know, our listeners know nothing about us. So t- tell me a little bit about yourself, Rivka. I am Rivka Rivera. I am an actor. I'm a playwright. I'm a filmmaker and artist educator. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and um, and now I'm the co-host of this podcast. Frank, who are you? I am Frank Capello. I am a uh, comedy writer, a podcast producer, a political content creator. Uh, you might be here because you've seen some of my work on TikTok. That's a possibility. Um, from New Jersey, very important, and also the co-host of this podcast. And so, Frank, we know each other because we went to college together. Full disclosure, Frank and I met in acting school. Yes. And we lived in L.A. together. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have a long history of watching movies, talking about movies. I think that's part of where this idea generated. But why you approached me with the idea for this show, which I loved. But like, why? Um. Over the last few years, I have really focused a lot of my creative energy on amplifying, honestly, just anti-capitalist messaging and ideas and concepts. Um, It's something that I know you and I both sort of were introduced to in the last few years, especially at the height of the pandemic, Um, really sort of seeing our, you know, systems all break down simultaneously and trying to piece together why this was happening. Why <laughs> why does it seem like society is just not working the way that it should be? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like you said, we, we're, we're both actors. We went to theater school. We love film. So I thought, let's do a podcast where we watch movies and discuss their politics, specifically their politics uh, in relation to capitalism. Um, and obviously I can think of no one better than you to, to join me on this journey. I think it's so interesting, um, because I, I do feel like I had this re-radicalization around the same time with you as many of us did around, um, prior, you know, during Donald Trump's rise and mm-hmm. the pandemic, but I was raised in a very, I'd say lefty household with lots of Marxist ideas that I just sort of never really questioned they were just kind of like part of until I went to uh, to school and realized like that Marxism was a bad thing or communism was a bad thing so yeah, I you feel were like we, kind of like a red diaper baby right yeah absolutely but I never fully investigated I think those that you know the way you inherit certain ideas as part of your household culture and they become normalized but you also mm-hmm. may not have that experience where you fully investigate them for yourself you sort of take them for granted. And so this has been a really, I guess, over the past few years, but then I was really excited about this opportunity as a way to further 
that education and that investigation, particularly around media and the media that I've consumed and ingested. And like, I remember you and I used to sit around and watch Lost or that was, I think that was one of the first series we watched the whole thing of Lost. Oh in yeah, our dorm binge room. watched all of Lost, <laughs> dating but ourselves. But it's interesting where like the maturity of that conversation and where we're taking it. I don't think we ever, I don't think at that time that was a lens through which we were looking at things. So it's exciting now to revisit this. And I think so important. Yes. No, because at the time we were, I'd say, fairly political, but also definitely liberals, you know, very much like, you I, know, uh, vote, yeah. vote blue, you know, hadn't really engaged in radical politics in the way that we definitely have at this point in our lives. Yeah, it's wild. I'm not saying you, but I remember people at school. I do remember coming from New York and, and it was a culture shock for me to go to school because we were coming out of like the George Bush protests and mm -hmm. all of that. And I remember being told multiple times, like, tone it down. Like, oh, wow. Can you not talk about politics right now <laughs> at this party? Trying to get fucked up. <laughs> But it was a culture shock in terms of like just talking about stuff was like toned up for people to even just like talk about it. You know, that's they say that politics is one of the things you're not supposed to bring up over dinner. And I think, you know, it makes people uncomfortable. It makes people have to face, you know, uncomfortable realities that they don't normally like to face. And I mean, I get it. It's it can be a huge, huge bummer. But, you know, we're we're going to frame this in a way to make it as accessible as possible, because, you know, it's it is for us, fun to kind of extrapolate the politics of something that might not seem inherently political. Yeah, our plan is not to ruin all films. No, that's not We're. this is not going to be like, this is why you can't like this movie anymore. No, I mean, like, we're going to discuss it. We're going to try to be we're trying to have principal discussions and, you know, incorporate as much like thoughtful analysis as possible. But we also want this to be an entry point for people. You know, we're not going to be like, getting deep in, you know, Marxist theory or whatever. We want people who maybe this is their first time, you know, dipping their toe into anti-capitalist politics to kind of like hear a more casual way to discuss some of these concepts. Especially because we're both coming to it as artists, as actors, as creators. And so I think I know part of my hesitation or just worry that I think maybe is just an inherited worry that's sort of bullshit that I'm trying to shed is this idea if you like critique a thing, you're getting too caught up in a critique and you somehow can't create from there. But that's bullshit because as I, I feel like as I further investigate my critiques, it only helps you be a better artist and be more intentional with the kind of art you want to create. Not that you'll do it perfectly every time, but it's exciting to see how this kind of analysis can inform creativity as well. Absolutely. And we should also say that we are not experts in, <laughs> we are not, no, 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 we are, we are constantly learning. I am, you know, trying to digest as much information as I can all the time. So we are learning along with you. Um, so please do not, please do not take anything that we are saying as like gospel. But we'll have a variety of guests, some who will be experts in their field. And our goal is to have also people who just want to talk about movies in this way and analyze it and discover together. So our goal is just to have a variety of people on the show. So the structure of this show is going to be, we'll have a guest on, they will pick the film. We will talk about the film and why they picked that film. And it'll be juicy and exciting. And we've already recorded a few of these. Um, and you know what? We've been having a fun time and we're really excited to, to share these with everyone. We hope you really enjoy them. Uh, we hope, uh, 
it doesn't depress you too much because you know <laughs> while you know while we live in an age of highly dysfunctional government with a corporate class that has essentially purchased all of our politicians and institutions and our media you know there's still good stuff happening you know labor organizing is is up uh, at places like Starbucks, Trader Joe's, and Amazon, there are more progressive and socialist uh, politicians in city and state governments than there have been in any time, probably in the last 80 years. And a growing number of millennials and Gen Z view capitalism unfavorably. Yeah. So you are in uh, hopefully warm company. And with that, we will get to our conversation for today. But first, just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, so with that, we are going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about Ghostbusters with David Sirota. So we're here with David Sirota. He is an award-winning journalist, author, Oscar-nominated writer on the movie Don't Look Up, the speechwriter for Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign, and the founder of The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet which produces this show. David, welcome to Movies versus Capitalism. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, David, we're thrilled that you're here. You're kind of like the you're kind of like the prototypical guest that we're that we're looking for for this show, um, because you have been writing about the intersection of pop culture and politics for years. I mean, you wrote an entire book about it called Back to Our Future. Um, and actually, the movie that we're going to be discussing is included in that book. So wh where where did you first get the inclination that pop culture and politics had an important intersection that needed its own form of analysis. Well, I grew up in the 1980s uh, into the early 1990s was my kind of formative years. Um, and I think um, moving from that, you know, through grade school into high school at, at that period and then uh, into politics, there was a period of time when I wrote Back to Our Future where I was looking back on why our politics still seemed so so much like a like a 1980s movie or a television show so many of the themes that um that still defined our politics even into the 2000s 2010s still felt like something out of like a you know out of uh, something from the A team or something from Lethal Weapon and I started looking into all of the different themes that were sold to children in the mm. 1980s or Ooh, and, yeah. and 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 thinking about how the venues of pop culture are really arguably the most politically influential venues, more so than a, a political ad or a political mailer. Because when you consume a political ad or a, 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 a political mailer, there's a filter on it that your brain puts up that says this is political. 
mm-hmm. a filter that doesn't exist when you're a kid watching a television show. You know, when you're watching uh, G.I. Joe uh, effectively glorify the military industrial complex and you're 12 years old, you're not thinking through what it's necessarily teaching you, even though it most certainly is teaching you a lot of things. Yeah, it's the ultimate conditioning. Yes. All right. So the movie we are talking about today is one of your favorites, uh, the 1984 comedy smash hit Ghostbusters, <laughs> the story of three parapsychologists who start a ghost catching business in New York City and end up facing off with a Sumerian demigod trying to destroy the world. Uh, the film was released on June 8th, 1984, directed by Ivan Reitman, written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, starring Bill Murray, Aykroyd and Ramis, Sigourney Weaver, Ernie Hudson, Rick Moranis and Annie Potts. The budget for this movie was somewhere between 25 to 30 million dollars and it grossed roughly 229 million worldwide and at the time was the highest grossing comedy of all time. It was also the highest grossing I think until 1990 when Home Alone came out. Whoa. So it was like massively popular. Yeah, you know, this is a, this is a movie that was like truly, I mean, you guys are probably too young to remember it. Um uh, but when I was a kid, as they say, uh this was like a cultural phenomenon. I mean, it wasn't just a movie. It was a how, it was a whole thing. Uh, I guess I was about nine, nine oh. years old. Uh, right so in, the, this right was in the sweet spot. Right in the sweet spot. I mean, I think there were action figures and there were I think there were playing cards and the song was the the top of the charts. Uh, by the way, side note, fascinating uh, recent documentary about Ray Parker Jr., uh, and what a musical genius he is uh, and how he worked with every musical genius uh, from Motown. Uh, so I, I can't even remember the name of the doc, but it's just out. It's really interesting. He's, he's way more than the guy who just sang the Ghostbusters song. But I digress. All, all it is to say is that this movie was a true cultural phenomenon in a way that I think cultural products have trouble becoming now because of the era of social media and the internet have kind of um, fragmented so much. I mean, the mid 1980s, there was still a consolidated media ecosystem in which when something became a cultural phenomenon, it could dominate the entire culture in a kind of in a totality that it it really can't anymore in some ways. So, you know, as I think I said in the book, anybody below uh, anybody older than than probably at this point, uh, 40, maybe even 35 uh, can can remember if not in the original release of the movie, then at least in the reruns can remember lines from this movie because it was such a big deal. Yeah, that's really we'll get into it. But I think that's such a that's really fascinating because having not had that as part of my upbringing, but still having the cultural remnants like the song, the idea of what's happening, the Halloween costumes and that people can remember lines from it. But nobody can really tell you what happens in some of these. (laughs) Right. right? They don't remember um, the political gist of it or what the messaging in is, which I think is really fascinating and powerful when you do a rewatch like we just did for this. It's kind of stunning. I mean, Ghostbusters is is a pure there is such pure, almost cartoonish politics underneath it. And and I want to be very clear. We're going to be talking about the the problematic politics of it. But to be clear, I. I am of the belief that you can point out the problematic politics of a movie and still love a movie. So I still very much love Ghostbusters, even though some of the messages baked into it are 
deeply problematic. Well, yeah, if we just wrote off every problematic storyline or problematic, you know, scene in any movie uh, completely, then we would not be able to enjoy any movie that ever right. came out prior to like two years ago, for the most part. And I want to add one other thing about this, which is to say that I think we have to look at these movies like Ghostbusters is a great example, that it's not that necessarily the filmmakers are trying to indoctrinate. I think first and foremost, the filmmakers or people who make TV shows back in the in the era, they're reflecting back what they think are the stories that people are most familiar with and are going to connect with and are going to resonate. In other words, they're kind of meeting people where they are. I remember I had on my old radio show um, when I hosted here in Denver, a guy named Stephen J. Cannell uh, or Cannell. Maybe that's how he said his name. He's the guy, anybody who's as my age can remember every TV show that he did at the very end of one of his TV shows, you'd see a guy typing at a typewriter and then he'd pull the sheet off and it would turn into a C and it was the Stephen J. Cannell show. Uh, so he did, I think he did the A team. He did, I think he might've done LA law or what, you know, a bunch of these shows and Magnum PI I can't remember, but but I asked him, I was like, you know, the A-team's got some anti-government themes in it, to say the least. And I asked him, I was like, you know, are you trying to sell, were you trying to sell a political view? And he was like, look, I was just, I was just writing TV shows in the 1980s when, when the themes of the A-team were in the, were in the ether. Like I wasn't trying to, you know, I wasn't trying to sell people on a political ideology. So I think it's worth mentioning that looking back at a movie like the Ghostbusters and talking about what themes it's at, what it's actually saying underneath it, the sort of storyline is, is not that the filmmakers are trying to sell a political ideology. It's that they're reflecting a political zeitgeist of the moment. I think that's absolutely right on, especially for this movie, which came out right in the middle of the Reagan era. Um, Rivka, can you go through some of the historical context of this, which I found really fascinating? Yeah, absolutely. So at the time, the video game Tetris was released in the Soviet Union on the Electronica 60 console. Bruce Springsteen released the album Born in the <laughs> USA and Prince released Purple Rain. Damn. The Summer Olympics were about to take place in Los Angeles. The TV program Jeopardy was soon to begin its syndicated version with host Alice Trebek. And the crack epidemic is underway in Los Angeles area and soon spreads across the entire United States. And of course, there was the 1984 presidential election, which ended with Ronald Reagan winning re-election in a historic landslide, winning 59% of the popular vote and 49 of 50 states. So this is the place we're in when this film comes out. This is the peak, peak, peak of the of the Reagan era, for sure. I mean, it, 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 it really was. And I think there's so much about this movie that 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 makes that clear that that's exactly when it came out. So, David, why did you choose this movie? Like, I, I mean, I think it's, it's clear in what we're already talking about. But when when you were pitched this for this podcast, what were you like? That's why we got to talk about Ghostbusters, because I think a lot of the themes in the movie looking back the comedy in 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 the comedy and it's it remains great comedy it's so kind of obvious it's so kind of it, like the movie bill murray is the character who's winking at everyone all the time uh and there are so many lines that he says that he's winking almost about the ideology in question i mean let, let's let's like start it off with like what's the top line story okay the top line story is that and, and to be honest, I think looking back now, especially and it's actually resonant in this political moment, too, is that I think it's it's actually 
the ghosts in some ways are a proxy for crime in New York City or the perception of crime in New York sure. City. Just like there's this, you know, whole narrative now about New York City, the crime has gotten out of control and how that idea has been wildly overblown from where the statistics say it is. But back in the mid 1980s, um, New York was known the, the, the billing of New York, how it was presented is, you know, a crime infested place that's gotten completely out of control under Democratic control and under kind of uh, aging, um, uh, ancient, in, uh, ineffective municipal bureaucracies, municipal government. Uh, so New York has a new crime spree. It's a Ghosts, right? Ghosts are terrorizing uh, New York, and the uh, in, ineffective, uh, uh, ostensibly Democratic uh, Party government of New York uh, doesn't know how to deal with this. Can't deal with it. Is completely inept, and the only people who can figure out how to how to deal with this crime wave, uh, this this essentially uh, neighborhood security problem is a, a private corporation run by basically a bunch of tech bros, uh, science-y tech bros, uh, early precursor to the tech bros as we know them, um, the kind of nerdy, but but nerdy, but hyper commercial, hyper capitalists, especially um, especially uh, Bill Murray is the is the hyper hyper capitalist in it. So actually, the company is kind of like Bill Murray is not really that a scientist. He sort of is. <laughs> he dabbles it, but he's really clearly motivated by money. Uh, and he makes he's open about this. He's not he we're supposed to laugh along with him about how obsessed he is with making big money off of this. And then he's got the two nerds, Egon and Ray are the like the 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 sort of purest scientists and they're the only ones who can figure out how to fix this and and their main obstacles to fixing this end up being uh the government uh the federal government uh through the uh, uh, uh character of an EPA uh, 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 sort of mid-level administrator who starts asking uh annoying questions of them starts meddling and screws up their system that has been saving the city uh and ultimately gets them locked up and the only way that the uh, the day is saved is that the municipal government, which, of course, has fallen down on the job, it has to step in. It has to punish the EPA guy and free the private contractors, the uh, <laughs> the, the the private company to save the city like that is the movie. So why did I pick it? It's because the entire parable is about <laughs> how the public sector cannot do anything at all and actually is is preventing the private sector from solving true emergencies that are that are threatening the ultimately the existence of society. Well, great. I think that was the entire podcast. I think we <laughs> I think we, we we covered it all right there. No, I, I totally agree with you. And in rewatching it, it had been a minute since I had seen the whole movie all the way through. I was super bummed out by everything you just laid out um, <laughs> because it is. It's a very, you know, there's parts of it that still hold up. It's very funny. And it definitely launders these very pro-business, anti-government ideologies through what is like a very broad comedy, especially one that like appeals to children, you know, which I was like, oh, that sucks. That that kind of sucks that like kids are getting this message early on that like the the, the government is the bad guy. And it's actually that's the right. private the private business owners who are the good guys. That, that That's right. I mean, there is this there's a couple of lines that we should we should start off with. I mean, it starts at the very beginning. I don't know. And, and I've watched this movie so many times where the very beginning of the movie um, has. um 
the Ghostbusters, well, before they're the Ghostbusters, they're just science guys. Um, they, after they've sort of been called in, in a kind of a pure science uh, situation in the library, where the first, the librarian sees the first ghost and they call in sort of the scientists from the local university, right? The, the total nerds, the total nerds come in, they're like, oh, we got a problem, it's ghosts. They're walking back to their office at the at the university, essentially, I mean, it might have been a private university. Who knows? I think it might have actually been the campus of Columbia. But either way, it's the sort of non-commercial, non-capitalist setting. They walk back to their office and they're getting thrown off campus, right? And they get thrown off campus because the guy at the at, in academia is like, "Your your research is a joke. You know, you guys, it's not real science." He's, he's correct too. He's sort of well. Is he correct? Because they just found a ghost. Like, is he correct? Uh, he is correct. <laughs> And I, I just want to insert that I will say my my watching of this film was totally dictated by like that first scene, right? Where I'm just watching it as now an adult woman being like, oh, it, to me, it was like a lesson in this is why like there's so much sexual assault rape culture. Oh, you're talking the about the very, very first scene with the cards? Yeah, the cards. But I think that's how I saw it. I was like, yeah, these guys are fucking asshole hacks. Like that was my in. So when I'm like, yeah, he was right. I was like, I don't like personally. I was like, get him out of here. Get him out of here. Especially Venkman, because like you could For make sure. you could make the argument that like Aykroyd and Ramis, like as science or like Ray and Egon are really trying to do good yeah. science, like hard science. Right. And for whatever reason, they've chosen to schlep this total asshole along with right, them right, for the ride. Right. Totally. And he, I guess, Venkman is not doing real science. The first scene with the cards where he's doing the sort of fake experiment of whether you he's have telepathy and he's, he's hitting on a woman. Scam. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. But but I do think actually there's an, there's a, there's an ugly message even in them getting thrown off campus, yeah. which is the idea, because at the time, and we've seen this in Congress all the time, um, uh, the standard thing that conservatives do in Congress all, every budget season is they'll pick out some form of university research that on paper sounds absurd, and they hold it up as liberals wanting to fund all this garbage, right? I think when I was working in Congress in the in the early uh, late 90s and early 2000s, they would always say, you know, why are we spending, uh, you know, $5 million a year to study cow farts, right? Like, uh, like stuff like that, right? And like, I'm sure what Ray... Egon and Bankman are studying, you know, paranormal psychology or whatever. That would be pulled out on the floor. We're studying like ghosts. Like what? Like so they so they so at one level they get thrown off campus for the same sort of conservative argument that comes out throughout the whole the whole movie, which is like sort of free flowing basic R and D into the unknown is a waste of time, and so they get thrown off campus for that. But here's the line I'm, I want to get to, which is which is. So they're outside. They've been thrown off campus. They're lamenting, like, what are we going to do and and how bad this situation is? They don't know what they're going to do. And Aykroyd says this. Personally, I like the university. They gave us money and facilities. We didn't have to produce anything. You've never been out of college. You don't know what it's like out there. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. <laughs> I mean, it's so perfect, right? So it's like academia, this, the kind of non-commercial part of the world is a complete joke that 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 is a just a just a complete it's a fraud it's a total fraud mm -hmm. anything that is not about making money 
uh, anything that is not a privately owned endeavor uh, is where the serious stuff happens. They expect results there in this namby pamby public sector. That's a joke. Like we, we everybody's pampered. You know, it's like it, it, it's and what's beautiful, what's brilliant about the writing is they're communicating this entire political ideology in like five seconds. Right. That was like a five or ten second clip. Just perfectly encapsulating that whole ideology. And that really is an ideology. Absolutely. And they keep I think I think that sort of that tonal brilliance that they keep hitting throughout it. I mean, that came to me, especially in the introduction of Peck, right, the guy from the EPA, when he first meets Venkman. And it's like two kids being like, "Mm, mm, mm." but totally, as a child, I'm like, I may not know what the hell you're talking about, or what the EPA is, because I wouldn't as a kid, right? But I know that's the bad guy because he doesn't know how to use the magic word, please. Like he's the mommy and daddy and like we're the kids you root for. And that was brilliant how they set that up and scary. Totally. A- absolutely. I mean, I mean, the, the choice of the EPA guy, which we should get to more because it's so it, it's actually so like I hadn't thought about that as a kid, even as a college kid. Like, I think I only thought about that when I started researching my book as like an actual adult. And it kind of disturbed me that there were like adults at the time who were watching this thinking that this was like totally like this was a way to tell a story. Also, like the (laughs) choice of the the EPA specifically, like they could like like that guy could have been from the Pentagon, you know, like like Peck could have been like from the from like the defense side of things. But like, hey, we hear you have these weapons. No, no, no. He's the guy from the Environmental Protection Agency. Yes, yes. Not a not an accidental choice. Not an accidental choice. C- impossible to be an accidental choice. Literally, just when he enters, he's worried about these nuclear backpacks that right. these <laughs> that these guys are carrying around. Shouldn't they? Shouldn't he be worried about that? Like, he should be. And, he because, should be and by the way, worried about it. They they have presaged it by saying they're in the hotel. This is before we even meet the EPA guy. The hotel scene. There's so much packed into that. There's they're on the elevator. And Ray says, well, what something like, well, what's to worry about? We're all carrying an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on our back. Like, right. shouldn't the EPA be worried about that? Like, shouldn't somebody be worried about that? And and there's that line where and this is the 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 sort of brilliance. And I, I guess you call it, I guess, the evil brilliance of the movie, even though, again, I want to state I do love this movie. It's that it's that Vankman is constantly being very open about the commercial profit nature of the entire endeavor at, you know, yeah, he's the franchise alone will make us rich beyond our wildest dreams. Exactly. And he says that, but then he goes out after they catch the ghost in the hotel at a press conference in front of all the reporters, he says, no job is too big. No fee is too big. Right. Like he's leaning into it like he's he's like it's like part of the brand is that. And at one point when when the when the hotel owner is like, I won't pay the money, I'm not going to pay it. He's like, well, we'll just we'll just put this ghost right back into your hotel. Like if you don't pay us the money, like it's in some ways it's like an extortion scheme. And 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 it's part of the brand of the Ghostbusters. It's not like something we're hiding. Like we save the day. Hey, here's the bill. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. keep quiet. It's like it's like. We are here to make a ton of money. It's like very Theranos, very like that 
building of like why we could all get behind that quick like who cares it's a great idea who cares how it happens and actually in in some ways it's like you know the, the t i mentioned the tech bros i mean the tech bros today they're always uh, you know putting their 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 mission in in this in this our god of like saving the world like credit to the ghostbusters in some ways for being <laughs> honest they're not they're, they're not peter bankman's not like i'm here to save the world i'm helping the he's like i'm here to make a lot of money that's what i'm here to do no he doesn't want to save anyone up until the last moment uh, of <laughs> right. the movie he like it does not want to save the world does not want to sacrifice himself and only does because like he, he's forced to by the greater good um but there's actually a couple of Things that we found, I know you were talking earlier about like, you know, the film just sort of reflecting the time. But in researching this, we actually found a couple of things about Ivan Reitman, the director, which are a little like he's reflecting and a little this kind of is his ideology. Ooh, I'm so, interested. Yeah. So when him and Aykroyd were developing the movie in one of their first meetings, Reitman said to Aykroyd that the Ghostbusters need to start a business because, quote, this was the beginning of the 1980s everyone was going into business. So this was a little bit more uh, intentional than I, th than I think we, we might want to let on. And then Rivka, you found something else as well about his political leanings. Yeah, there was a quote uh, once telling Entertainment Weekly, I've always been something of a conservative slash libertarian. The first movie deals with going into business for yourself and it's anti-EPA, too much government regulation. It does have a very interesting point of view that really resonates. Wow. My point of view is very interesting, actually. I thought about it. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. but, but, but I'm, and to, to, to not defend Ivan Reitman here, but to say this, which is, I, I guess my point on whether these movies are deliberately trying to sell something versus whether they are reflecting. I mean, it's it's a chicken or the egg thing. The question would be, you know, Ivan Reitman, first and foremost, has to make a commercially successful movie. Right. He Like that's sure. the, the studio has to make a commercially. They're trying to make a commercially successful movie. And I think that. He also is a product of the environment that he lives in. So I guess my point is, I don't think Ghostbusters is a, quote, political film in the sense of I don't think its mission is to sell a political story. Its mission is to entertain. But I think its choice of how to entertain, its choices of what to make fun of, its choices about who's funny, what's funny, uh, who are the heroes? Who are the villains? Those are the political choices of not only this movie, but really any movie. And I think this one made very, very clear political choices. But I don't I, I'm, I guess I'm questioning once you start writing a piece. Right. And like how what is the difference between your intention in writing it and then what ends up coming out in your intention of the characters and the plot? Isn't that sort of the same thing? No, sure, for sure. I mean, listen, they could have written a Ghostbusters in which the villain was a billionaire. Right. I mean, like like a yes. Donald Trump, the, 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 the owner of the building or something. Right. Like they could they, right. the, like ultimately those choices are political. And I think I guess my my point is, is that in theory, part of the decision matrix is I've got to decide those things based on which will resonate the most with the largest number of people. Mm -hmm. Right. And in the night. And to, so to go back to the context of when this movie comes out, it's the middle of the Reagan era. It's For the sure. middle of the go go 80s. Right. Where like, you know, I mean, I wrote about this, all this stuff in my book, but like, you know, 
the the CEO as hero, Lee Iacocca, was the big swashbuckling. And and by the way, Donald Trump before Donald the, the current Donald Trump, you know, art of the deal, the real yeah. estate kingpin. Well, that right? scene like, when they're at a tavern on the green. And he's like against there and you're looking in and I'm like, oh, the Diet Cokes, the cigarettes, the steaks. Like, I kind of just want to like, it's very of a time. Right. And I love that nobody cares about him. Right. Now, like he's literally screaming for help at right. the most elite. Uh, we're talking about Lewis, the uh, the accountant who's get, gotten chased out of his own home <laughs> by a, like a like a, you know, some sort of monster. He's screaming for help to the entire like the assembled elite of New York city. It's like a Tom Wolf novel, right? Like yeah. uh, people all dressed up, they hear the scream, like the music, like the, the eating and the sound in the restaurant sort of stops for like one second as he like essentially uh, pr presumably dies in front of them. Like he actually dies. Like he hits the glass and die. There's like a corpse outside and then they all <laughs> just go back to eating as if nothing happened. Yeah. That's great. I want to go back real fast, David, to your, your point you were making about the 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 plot choices which ended up being political choices ultimately because I, this feels actually it just kind of occurred to me feels representative of uh like the electorate's choices during the 80s which is sort of like we're just going to make these choices kind of flippantly if anything and i'm actually not going to think about the long term repercussions of mm -hmm. what's doing what's happening right now like all of the deregulation that was happening in the 80s all of like the union busting this was stuff that like the american people voters were very aware of but were like it's probably going to be fine it's probably going to be fine if we allow like financial markets to just absolutely deregulate themselves and like there can't possibly be any like bad repercussions i feel similarly about the plot choices in this movie where it's like it's like yeah i'm sure reitman and Aykroyd were like yeah it's funny they're business owners and the epa is the bad guy but that kind of like i said launders this ideology in a very fun and funny and accessible way to like a to an entire generation and especially this movie became so big you know there are probably people in the country who walked out of it just like subconsciously being like yeah, EPA is bad. EPA is bad. Just to the point where the actor, William Atherton, who played Peck, said he was so reviled that after the movie came out, people would want to get in fights with him at bars. Like he was. Oh, and then he, and then he like, by the way, then he did. And then that guy doubled down and was the biggest asshole in the world <laughs> in Die Hard. Uh, as, of course, the, the, the one of the bad guys in Die Hard was the journalist. Right. Remember, he's the journalist in oh Die God, Hard right. who wow. was like wow, shoving right. the mic in the face of the kids and being a complete asshole the whole oh. time. He made he made like a whole career off he of being like the like, most punchable face in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, I was like, hate it. But apparently he was really upset about it. Well, I mean, I mean, look. He was a, a he was a perfect cast for that uh, casting call uh, for that particular character. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think I, I do think that, yes, like these are super political choices. Um, I think they they resonated. I think you could again, you could have made a movie where the bad guy is a billionaire. You could have made a movie where the bad guy where the where the EPA guy it wasn't the EPA as, as Frank said, it was the Pentagon. It was the Pentagon or maybe it was just like a corrupt politician. Instead, it's like the sort of Walter Peck wasn't corrupt. He was just annoying. 
right? He was just an annoying and like, what's the phrase? What's the phenomenon where somebody has like a job and they start like enforcing the the sort of somewhat limited amount of power that they have? They sort of sort of over enforcing the rules or the power that they have because they mm-hmm. don't have a lot of power. Right. He says to the officer, "You can shoot him if you want to." Like he is he is a little bit like, "I'm going to use my power." Yes, and also also you know what? Now that we're talking about it, the other thing with that character. Do you notice that there's like no good motive ascribed to it at all? In other words, he's he's enforcing EPA rules sort of on the technicalities of the rules, but there's never a mention as to why those rules exist. Like he's never like, listen, you could blow up a whole city block with this thing. Like, uh, listen, we've gotten complaints about smells and like poison. And like, I'm I'm here to like try to help. Like instead, he's just there to be annoying. Like there's no explanation for any kind of public good in what he's doing. It's actually more nefarious that way because then it leads you to believe that the government is just going to show up and fuck your shit up for no reason, for no reason whatsoever. Exactly. For, for the crime of being successful, I guess, is the is the best the reason I can come up with. And they must have had they must have felt like they had to make that choice to make him like this is not a nuanced movie, right? Like Walter Peck is not a nuanced character. So they have to like, and by the way, that of course, that's like a very eighties thing about movies is like, everybody's a two dimensional character, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, everyone's either a horrible person or like a great, you know, a great uh, a hero. And, and so they, they, they didn't give any nuance to like, why, like the, like the the audience watches Walter Peck, the EPA guy. And is like, the EPA just exists to be annoying. It doesn't actually exist to prevent like, you know, a nuclear catastrophe or like massive pollution of like the city. It just exists to to give like small Lilliputians like a little bit of power to get in the face of businesses that that uh, that are otherwise saving humanity. Like there's no public good ascribed to any politician except the mayor. Right. And only when the mayor essentially fires the EPA. Which which, you know, that that's the moment where you're like, oh, the mayor's like a decent guy. Like he's like he's when he says, get that guy out of my office. Right. You're like the mayor rules. And you're like, wait a minute. The the reason the mayor rules, he's he's throwing the environmental regulator out like like this is the great political move by the mayor. Right. And he's doing it after. I think we have this clip. What if you're wrong? If I'm wrong, nothing happens. We go to jail peacefully, quietly. We'll enjoy it. But if I'm right. And we can stop this thing. Lenny, you will have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. By the way, credit to actor David Margulies, I think his name is, the guy who plays the mayor. Mm -hmm. His facial expression, the way it just changes right there, you can't see it. It goes from like concerned to this like... He's like sort of smiling and envisioning being the like political hero. Like it's it's kind of an incredible moment. And and by the way, the right before that, there's the line that when I was in summer camp was like used over and over and over again when he goes, yes, it's true. This man has no dick or yeah. this man has no <laughs> penis. Like that was like that when I was in, when I was nine years old, that was like when they called him dickless was like like every child who was like every nine year old boy was like that was like the big insult. Like that was the laugh line. And, and you know, I mean, the question that I like I don't we can't answer here is, you know, like. Did Bill Murray and um, uh, Harold Ramis like 
uh, they, they, they might listen to this conversation and think we're being like, uh, you know, sort of annoyingly pedantic or like too serious. And like, that's I'm the problem sure. with this entire with this, with this entire topic, which is like, which is like some people will roll their eyes and be like, oh, you know, you just you guys just can't enjoy a comedy. Right. It's just, it's just funny. Right. You just can't enjoy the comedy of it. Like you're just reading too much into it. And I got that feedback off my book when I wrote about a, a lot of this, a lot of this stuff. But I do want to go back to the core point, which is that. I do think like this does affect the way people think at a subconscious level. Like I don't yes. think lots of people walked out of Ghostbusters and were like, I hate the EPA. Right. But I do think a lot of people walked out that the next time they heard a politician be like, we got to get rid of EPA regulations. I do think there's like millions of people who like the like there's like if, if the synapse fired in their brain, they just saw like an image for like one second of like William Atherton. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we need, we, we need to get rid of EPA regulations. Right. Like, I think that's how it actually works. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this idea of like, Oh, can we just enjoy things? Like, why do we have to think too hard about them critically? Like if right. I think critically about something then I'm not going to be able to enjoy it. Like that might be the point. And I honestly think it's okay to not enjoy it as much as you once did. Personally, I don't think you can take the sex politics away from this. Like that was a bummer to watch the movie. And I think oh, if yeah. you recognize it and it's not as enjoyable anymore, then maybe you've made a like a little bit <laughs> headway. Like it Well, we haven't even talked well, just just to talk about that for a second. Yeah. Like to me, it gets actually more creepy. Oh yeah. When Vankman goes to her house uh -huh. to inspect on the first inspection visit. Oh like that's a million percent. That's not like I mean, to be honest, that that's the one one of the main part parts of the movie where you know how like you watch movies from you know the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, you're like, ah yeah, that 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 like that's that 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 doesn't that wouldn't work anymore. Like that that wouldn't be that's this that's the one part of the movie where you're like, wow, I not only does that not work now. I kind of can't believe that even worked back then. Like that, mm. like it, it's almost like uh, even too much, even for the era that it was in when he like won't leave her apartment and he asked for a kiss. And like, it was like, it's like, even for then, it, like it, it seemed like too it's much a constant. I mean, I'll say David, it's like a constant narrative in these rom-coms that were some of my favorites, you know, where you're like, this is both of them, both male characters who did their different ways are like, not getting the message that this woman is not interested at all and will aggressively continue. And eventually, of course, she'll find them somewhat charming or she'll be possessed and sleep with them. In the other case, it's this. And I think it's not only that it's that it, how could they get away with it as much as like you were saying, it's traumatic. I think I was kind of triggered to think this is a children's movie raising all these young men who are leaving with this, idea whether they understand it or not of this is how you woo a woman and if you like someone and she tells you she doesn't like you it doesn't mean she doesn't like you that's then that's like what you're internalizing although let's also make let's also make this point that the 80s and into the 90s definitely had a problem with like not choosing whether a movie was a child movie or an adult <laughs> movie like the like sure. I, I mean I, I i i go back and watch some of these movies i'm like wait a minute, why was I watching RoboCop as a kid? Like, this is not a children's movie. Like, <laughs> you know, like, well, like, I remember watching uh, the movie, one of my favorites, the sort of B movies was, was uh, Eddie Murphy and the Golden Child. And it's like, 
you're watching you're like why was it like first of all is this a horror movie or is this a comedy or is this a kids movie like there was a lot of like not picking in a really inappropriate way in the 80s and into the night i don't want to sound like a prude or anything but like <laughs> like is ghostbusters a kids movie or is it it's an adult marketed, movie? i mean it's certainly marketed like a children's movie so i think it's intentionally a children's movie. i think there's no way of that not being like you know in the kids movie for adults but i think it's intentionally marketed for kids and then so then the fact that he shows up later with 300 cc's of thorazine and roses and finds his possessed this possessed woman who he's thinking of as his girlfriend and yeah we're supposed to be like well he's he, he i mean i've heard people be like you know he didn't do anything you're like he kisses her neck it's just like he was the creepiest most fucked up thing i mean it's very it's very clear in that scene that he's like Try, like trying to resist oh. not sleeping with this woman who does not have control of literally over her right, own totally. mind or like, body. Totally. We're proud of him for not raping her. Like it's crazy. Yeah. That's the, that's the most credit you can give Venkman in this movie uh, is for not raping her in that scene. But I, I think this is a good, this is a good point to talk about the Bill Murray of it all, because <laughs> I think Bill, I, Personally, I don't think this movie works without Bill Murray. I don't think I don't think it, I don't think you put in any other actor. I don't know if it works as well um, on the whole. And then Venkman as a character, I think this is like maybe one of the most egregious examples of an absolutely terrible man being normalized by an actor's charismatic performance. Because like like River was saying, right from the junk, he is he's willing to throw the scientific method out the window if it means that he gets to sleep with the girl reading cards. Uh, he is only driven by money and sex. The only redeemable thing about him is that he's Bill Murray, is that he's funny, is that he's is that he he zips off these one liners that absolutely kill. And I do think he is extremely funny in this movie. But I think I think portrayals of men like this while they appear harmless on the surface, does, like all these other things, condition young men to believe, hey, I can be shamelessly trying to sleep with women all the time. I can be power or money hungry if I am charming and funny enough. And that's just not the reality of planet Earth. And I think we're seeing that a lot like reflected in modern uh, uh, discourse about comedy, which is like, oh, you know, th that guy can say that because he's funny. It's like, well, well, no, you shouldn't be able to just say anything just because maybe it comes off as funny. And I want to add to this that, that the context for Bill Murray, who, to be clear, I'm a huge fan of. I think he's obviously hugely talented. But let's remember the context of movies that he did because this was a very familiar character for him. Uh, as I remember it, I mean, I just, for whatever reason, a couple nights ago, rewatched Stripes. It's the same character. Like he's not a good dude in Stripes. Oh, yeah. Like he's a bad, basically a bad guy who has a lot of charisma, who's funny, but like isn't a super nice, um, good dude, right? Like uh, there's the movie Scrooged, where he's the same mm -hmm. character. Like not a good dude, and I mean he kind of had goes. It's like a you know the Christmas uh, what was it the like the visited by three Christmas ghost story and a, a Christmas Carol Christmas Carol right so but like and he does have he does sort of get redeemed a little bit and becomes he realizes that he's a bad dude uh, Groundhog Day like not a good dude right like Bill Murray definitely had a run of playing this particular guy that you that you mentioned who's like not a good person 
not behaving in a in like a in like a civilized way in an really in an acceptable way but gets away with it because he happens to be charismatic and funny right and i and i think i i think like this was clearly it's not just and to be clear it's not just bill murray like created that it's like there was something in the zeitgeist that that was like an acceptable archetype back then yeah and i would say not only is bill murray characters that way like this was bill murray's persona and i think there was a lot of that like you see him on late night talk shows there's a famous one with him and jenna davis and he's just like pulling her dress off and it's but and like looking at the audience literally like look what i'm doing and i can get away with it and i think you're right it oh, was Jesus. something about it's not just like I, I kind of cringe at the idea that it's like oh he's just so charismatic he gets away with it because personally for me his charisma has died. Like, I don't look at that man. I don't watch those films anymore. I'm like, I see it. But it's like that old friend that you thought was really funny when you were little. And now you're like, oh, not so funny anymore. It's just personally not there for me. So I don't know if it's so much a credit of like, yes, he's very charismatic and talented. But I think what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say, David, is there's also like this cultural acceptance. No one's calling that shit out. So of course, everyone's like, yeah, we're laughing at this, right? It's cute, right? Oh, yeah, it's so cute. No, and I think th I, I agree with you. I, I agree. It's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's not just Bill Murray. It's like what what was accepted at the time as an archetype. And, and as an aside for Bill Murray, I actually think that people were surprised when he in, – in, in I don't know if it was deliberate or not – when he he was able to make a transition to movies like – Rushmore or the Royal Tenenbaums or uh, Lost in Translation, certainly, where mm. he, he sort mm -hmm. of he, those characters more and more him trying to be the same kind of sleazy asshole. The, the, the story itself, the character itself, it's, it's not being venerated. It's like it's actually like this. This archetype is a problem. Like this is not mm -hmm. a good, like a this is this is something to be either sad about, lament, or be disgusted by. Yeah, because the message of this movie is you could be a bad scientist, you could be honestly a <laughs> shitty business owner. They're not good at running the business. You could be a total sleaze, and you'll end up saving the city and getting the girl, even though you've only spoken to her two times. I counted. I was the they've only had two actual conversations. It's also worth mentioning that like the two seemingly like at least not terrible guys the side characters uh lewis tully and then her violinist friend who's clearly into her they're like somehow they're like portrayed as like ridiculous for even thinking they might have a chance with or, or wanting to have a chance with sigourney weaver because they're like super nice right like the the, the nice guys are are sort of treated as like like totally like a joke like the, the not only not cool, but like almost pathetic, right? I mean, like, and, and I it's it's worth mentioning that a lot of these themes carry over into Ghostbusters Two, a much worse movie. But it's it, but they redid the same thing. It was a government person who created the problem. It was like the aide to the mayor. The mayor does not yeah. end up saving them. The judicial system treats them like crap now maybe you could argue that that was like a good portrayal right like where the judge there's in ghostbusters 2 the judge won't even listen to any reason he's just so he just wants to 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 administer or meet out the law so aggressively that he can't even hear uh the ghost uh the, the ghost threat in his own courtroom so maybe uh, you know maybe there's some politics there but but ghostbusters 2 is just a doubling down on all of this stuff Rifka, did you have anything else you wanted to hit before we go to the awards? I think we, I think we, we hit it. Yeah. 
All right. So this is the point where we, yeah, where we hand out our awards for the episode. And our first award is a point with a view. And this goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. Wow. The best politics. The best politics. I'm going to give this... I'm going to give this to Winston Zeddemore. I think when Ernie Hudson comes in, he is right on the ball the entire time. He knows where he knows what everyone's different perspective is coming from. And he's just he, he's just the most even keeled, not influenced. Like he's not influenced by the, the money making aspect of what they're hmm. doing. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Uh, wow. You're totally right. Like he's the voice of like. I'm just here to do a job and I'm also and by the way he's also asking like existential questions which should be asked like remember there's the scene in the in the um in the Ecto 1 where he's like like doesn't he? he's like what if this is the end of the world and like he like yeah, yeah talking like, about judgment day you're right he's the most grounded character in the whole in the whole movie he's like the working class guy yeah i think he's one of the best care i mean he's one of my favorite actors in the movie too yeah he's he, he's really great ernie hudson, so ernie hudson a fantastic actor if you've never seen the tv show oz highly recommend he's unbelievable in it um all right next award is despicable you goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie it's got to be yeah, Venkman. My, it's got to be peter Venkman. <laughs> there's no there can't even be debate on that yeah for all of the reasons we've already laid out well that brings us to our next award which is a star is scorned and this goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about i'm gonna say that it should be about Janine. Like I would want to, and apparently they cut out a whole bunch of their love Ooh, story. A movie but about I love Janine. Janine also had a line where she says, I read a lot, like I read a lot myself. Some people think I'm too intellectual, but I think it's a fabulous way to spend your spare time. I also play racquetball. Like she was- <laughs> Oh, that's right. The best. I'd like to see a movie about Peck. You could just call the movie Walter Peck. <laughs> you could watch a whole yeah. movie about like, Walter I wanna, Peck. Like what brought Walter Peck to, to that point in his life, like, like something, there's some dark story where, I mean, you could make it like a sure. hero story where it was like Walter Peck uh, saved a super fun site and like protected a community and like got totally burned by it. And now it's just on a rampage, right? He's just like, wants to get in everybody's face. That's great. Right? And David, you know, who would probably love for you to write that movie is William Atherton. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> we can resurrect <laughs> William Atherton's career. I personally want to see the movie about Lewis Tully, Rick Moranis's character. Um, I want to see the movie where he loses his uh, accountant's license and his has a complete identity crisis because I, <laughs> that's something that really resonated with me. Just like how hard he is hustling on his accountant the game. Entire the entire movie. The entire movie. Dude, the, when he, when he, there's like that, when he's introducing all of the guests at his little party, he's like, oh, it's John and Gene and they, yep. you know, they run a small business. I help them with the C Corp and they ask you, like, you're like, dude, you're, you're, it's like. Yeah, he says they're hustling. like yearly revenue out loud. He's like, he's like, they pull in about 50,000. Like, it's like, that's you should be sharing. It's so odd. He's such a great character. Um, All right. So, so David, before we wrap, uh, we like to end each show by talking about how, um, you know, we as artists and, you know, just humans on the earth are striving to practice our values in our real lives. uh, And in this case, our anti-capitalist values. So is there one thing uh, that you try to do in your own life, either a practice you engage in or an organization you're involved in, or, or just something that you do where you try to live a, if not strictly anti-capitalist, just a more, uh, uh, you know, like either anti-consumerist or a more like a more human uh, base. I mean, I, this is not a really satisfying answer, but, uh, but 
I, I feel like I organize, I've organized so much of my work life around that that uh and it's not to say that i don't do anything in my personal life i mean like for instance like i'm, I'm vegetarian and because i don't like to eat animals because like animals are alive and if i can avoid not killing something i don't want to why not avoid trying to you know killing something but i think i have tried to live those values by uh, uh having my work life devoted to uh mission oriented work uh you know where i do the i run the lever which uh is designed to uh, report stories that corporate media will not report stories that challenge and question and um, uh, uh, bring about bring uh, spotlight facts that the most powerful organizations, uh, corporations, institutions and uh, people uh, don't want surfaced. So uh, I've been fortunate enough to be able to uh, be able to make a living uh, in that kind of values based work. Uh, and um, you know that so like i feel like every day i wake up uh and granted like you know a lot of days in the work you're doing mundane tasks like paying bills and dealing with invoices and all that stuff but i feel like overall like the work i know i wake up every morning and the work is about um surfacing and educating um the as much of the population as i can about how this system that we live in doesn't have to be this way that there are more humane ways to treat people there are there are more humane ways to organize a society uh and um when we spotlight outrages it's to say this doesn't have to be this way and i think uh, we were to bring it all the way full circle here i think that the reason your show is important uh and the reason focusing on the messages of, of pop culture is important is because pop culture is so often uh, baking in ideologies into people's brains about what is normal what should be accepted uh what what should be tolerated what should be celebrated things that are actually when you start thinking about them for more than one second actually shouldn't be celebrated or tolerated that there can be a totally different way uh there can be a totally different way to handle uh, a ghost outbreak in New York City, other than hiring a for-profit, uh, profit-obsessed private corporation. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. There are different ways to deal with that situation. There are different ways to make sure that uh, it doesn't become an environmental catastrophe. Uh, uh, and the Ghostbusters taught us that, that that's not true, but actually it is true. Mm. And like most public science, it's, you know, funded by us, the taxpayers, yes. and then taken by a private entity totally. for the use of profit. <laughs> David, uh, thank you so much for joining us. This was this was yeah. awesome. This was a good one. This is great. Thanks to both of you. Thank you all so much for listening to our first episode. Uh, if you'd like, you can follow us on Instagram and TikTok, Movies versus Capitalism. And again, if you want to support this show, head over to levernews.com slash MVC to pitch in. Thank you all so much. We'll see you later. Constraint.